Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan. We started a series on hermeneutics. We're a few films in, sometimes I lose track. And so today I wanted to kind of start with what Matt and I feel like is the best or most reasonable approach to a hermeneutical law, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And so there's all kinds of different methods or terms for hermeneutics, different ways to work through the text, things like that. You see all kinds of them out there. And so we're going to share what we like the best today. Yep. Now, with that being said, when you look at just about any of these, there's typically four things that they have in common. One of them is that they're kind of the first and foremost is scripture interprets scripture. So yep. you're going to see that everywhere. None of them are really going to disagree with that. You're going to say that, you know, the, the scripture within the text of the whole Bible has to work together or interpret itself. We're not using anything else to interpret scripture. You know, Matt and I like all kinds of stuff outside of the Bible, but we're not using that to interpret the Bible. Yeah, so we we're need not to be building our doctrines off of the Dead Sea Scrolls exactly. or ancient Greek texts. Good. The next thing is the big one for us, and this is context interpret scripture. And this is one that people kind of start having strange conversation <laughs> arguments about, but on a very basic level, there everybody that uh, that adheres to any form of hermeneutical law is going to agree that context is really important. Mm -hmm. The third one is intent. What what is the intent of the author? What are they saying here? And so, this is again one that everybody's going to agree upon, but then it gets kind of more complicated as people start to break this one, you know, sooner than the other one. Yep. So a way to put this is is that if an author is writing about one thing, are you going to draw a whole doctrine out of it about something completely different than what he's writing about? Yeah, and the scripture that we're going to dive into in a little bit, just to give an example of this, we might look a little bit about how people might draw a doctrine of eternal security out of a certain verse that it's not the author isn't intending to teach about internal sec eternal security. Yeah. yeah. Then the fourth one, when you're talking about four basic rules that kind of everybody adheres to, is the clear interprets the not so clear, or maybe some people call that the obscure. And so you're going to take the scripture that we know and maybe is, you know, less arguable, and you're going to apply that to areas that you feel might, there might not be a clear path going on. So you're going to let the, the clear kind of define the parts that might be unclear. So whatever method of hermeneutics you're using, they're all really hinging on these same four principles. We're not getting away from these four principles, and we, sh we could show you several other paths of hermeneutics that might be good, but this is the one that we think is the best. So with that being said, what do we think is the best, Matt? So Ryan, the method that I think is the best, um, and the, the one that I learned, and as I've been studying all sorts of different, I guess, methods of interpreting scripture, I keep coming back to the socio-rhetorical method. Okay. And in our first episode on hermeneutics, uh, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett from Trinity Seminary, he mentioned this one, and we only talked about maybe a couple of the what's called the textures of, of this method. And so the socio-rhetorical method came about by, um, he mentioned Vernon Robbins. And I graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 1997. And at the time, this had just emerged and it was a little controversial. I remember senior year, this was the buzz mm -hmm. at, at the school of what was going on. And I immediately gravitated to it. I thought it was much better than anything we had at that Yeah, point. I think his book, uh, The Textures of the Text, came out in 94. 
95 or 94, a little, before, a little yeah. bit before, a couple years before that. So it, it revolves around five textures of the text. So the first texture is called the inner texture, and that really deals with just the words on the page. Yep. So what does the original language say? Words on the page, um, word studies fall like into this Language texture. analysis, all yep. that kind of stuff. Yeah, like yep. what does it actually say in the original language? Um, then you get to the inner texture. And we had an episode on this where we talked with uh, Josh Brooker and Mike Donahoe, where yep. how do pastors deal with stuff maybe that's quoted in the texture that might be from without outside the Bible. We talked about Paul quoting Plato yeah. and um, yeah. in Acts 17 where he quotes the pagan poets and stuff like that. So how does the text of the Bible interact with the texts of the world at the same time? Yep. Uh, the third texture is what Jonathan Pritchett got really into and that was the socio-cultural texture. Yep. Uh, how do customs and basically the framework of ancient culture, how does that help us um, the foundations of how we should interpret things. And all of these have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you look into even, we always kind of talk about first, second, third century writings mm -hmm. as almost being, you know, ideas of people writing thoughts on what was happening at the time. And you even see some of this stuff even being emphasized back then when it was right after their time. Yep. So the next texture is the ideological texture. So you take those first three textures, so the inner texture, what the text says, the inner texture, how does it relate to what's been written at the same time, the sociocultural texture, how does culture play into it in sociology, and then you're like, all right, based on all of that, what is the author trying to say? Yeah. So this isn't putting our biases into the text. This is what, what are the biases of the author Yeah. rather than what are our biases and trying to... And we talk about uh, often the grammatical historical method, which is yep. a very conservative method. Um, and we like that method, but we think it kind of lacks in the way of looking at the sociology and culture. Yeah. Um, and might miss, actually, when you ignore that, what the actual author is trying to get to. Yeah. And a lot of people realize that the authors, particularly of the New Testament, felt differently about things. And mm -hmm. so trying to get that in your head and trying to figure out how each author felt a little bit differently is important to mm -hmm. the doctrine or the subject matter at hand. Yeah, so the fifth texture is usually where people go to first if you're just a lay yeah. person reading the Bible. <laughs> talked about that. That's the sacred texture. Yeah. All right, so when you read this, what does it say about God? What does it say about faith? How yep. should we respond spiritually to, to what's written? Um, and we should respond spiritually to this, and we should draw thoughts about God and our faith from the text, but it should be fueled from those other four textures. Yep. So that's the five textures. Mm -hmm. Now, there actually is kind of a sixth texture, too. Tell us about that. Yeah, William Brosen at um, SBL, um, Society of Biblical Literature, um, I can't remember what year it was. It was a few years back, brought up um, with the blessing of Vernon Robbins, a uh, texture of the homiletical texture, which is how should these texts be preached? Yeah. So that's more of a pastoral texture of uh, someone who's a preacher, teacher. How should it be taught and preached um, to our congregations? Good. So what we want to work through today is Romans 8.28. Mm -hmm. And the reason we want to work through Romans 8.28 is you often hear me get aggravated about things taken out mm -hmm. of context, about things misquoted, yep. about things proof texting, particularly sermons, stuff like that. And for me, somebody that kind of prides myself in living by hermeneutic law, whenever I hear one of these things happen, and if you watch any of our videos, usually at least at mm -hmm. some point during a video, I kind of go off on a rant about something <laughs> like this. And this is why, and we really haven't broken down something hugely. Mm -hmm. And so today we're going to work through this one and you're going to see 
why it's often misquoted and why I feel like I want to explode when somebody misquotes it every time or uses yeah. it out of context or something like that. Yeah, so part of the reason that we chose to maybe work through this as an example, Romans 8, 28 through 30, was um, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett brought up um, the word porozo, yeah. which is predestined in Greek. And so we got some questions about that. So we figured that this is one of the texts that mentions it twice. And so we figured, hey, we'll, we'll work through this and look at how the the culture maybe understood this, and plus Romans 8.28 is an often very abused verse in the evangelical church. So we yep. figured, hey, this is a good teaching moment to talk about hermeneutics and work through these texts, through these five textures, and maybe we can learn something all together. Sounds good. So let's read it. It says Romans 8.28, this is the NASB, which is the version that I usually read from. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so let's take it one texture at a time. So our first texture, as we talked about, was what do the words on the page say in the original language? The inner texture. Yep. So this falls into, like we said, the word studies, but also... What's there and what isn't? Um, some of you, if you read an NASB, most NASB um, Bibles, which Ryan and I both really enjoy that. We read multiple translations, yep. but that's one that we prominently come to. Um, it'll have in italics words that aren't actually in the text. Yeah, what that's, is that? <laughs> what, that's what, what I like about it. When I read it, it's like if it's um, the words in the regular, regular text are in regular font, but then it'll have some italicized words, which are words that the interpreters, the translators have put in to help us understand the rest of the sentence because sometimes Greek isn't completely understandable to us. And yeah. this is one of those verses. The word God is added into this verse. Yes, very interesting. So you often hear, in fact, you know, there's songs out there all the time that says, you know, God, we know that you're using mm -hmm. everything to to our good or to work yeah. out for the good. They they kind of use this and in the original text here that they're loosely quoting Romans 8:28, mm -hmm. we don't even know for a fact that God was in the text right there. Yep. Yeah, so when it comes with like the predestined language and the purpose language, yeah. They make God the subject, but actually Origen, Theodoret, and a few other early interpreters put the one put the subject of that actually is a human, the purpose, yeah. um, the person who loves God, that's the one who they make the subject of yeah. the verse. And there's others that make the spirit the subject of the verse, because if you look back a few verses before, it's talking about the spirit interceding for us and making petitions when we don't know how to pray yeah. and things yeah. like that. So at that point, is God really the subject? Right. Let's keep going. Yeah. Works together. What about that? So works together. A lot of people, especially from the Reformed tradition, don't want to give humanity such a big role in the purpose in this verse. It's predestined language. Yeah, it's predestined into, language yeah. in the subject of this these whole three verse yeah. thing. So if you're given humanity the the purpose, basically that them working together, do they play a role? And yeah. we've talked about yeah. this with our language of grace and our language of faith. We just had Matthew Bates on and the response of man yeah. in that and yeah. grace is reciprocal. Um, so that all plays in, and that was... you get a free choice cooperation thing yeah. that you're working through there. So yeah. really, when you when you look at this, the purpose stuff, it, yeah, um, a lot of the early early church 
really saw that it, it was all working together. And we'll yeah. get more into that when we get to kind of the ideological texture. Yep. Yep. But um, yeah, that's that's some of the things we need to consider here. So you have foreknown and it's a verb. Let's work through this a little bit. There's also predestined. Why is this important to kind of get into the actual parts of speech that they're working through? Yeah, so if we take each of these words, so we got foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They're kind of the big theological buzzwords yep. in yep. this section, and people like James White have called it like the golden chain of redemption yeah, or whatever, this right. unbroken chain of <laughs> before the foundation of the world, God calling people to, to him, and he, often people use it for eternal security. Yeah. Um, we talk about context a lot. So first, um, dealing with the inner texture, this is where we do word studies. So we got to see how it's used in the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So foreknown in the rest of the Bible, we got it in Acts 26.5 and in 2 Peter 3.17 of people foreknowing other people and things. So if we attribute this to God, we can attribute it to people too. So is it something supernatural? Right. <laughs> you know, is it hmm. is it some fancy divine word yeah yeah when people can do it as well um and in hebrew there was this idea that it was a relationship that was experienced or knowledge and mm -hmm. so when you read in the old testament you wouldn't at all get the idea that most people think it says in the new testament it just it wasn't there at all yeah in the old testament it was the word uh, yada yeah which i believe you did one of those in your praise yep, videos those, yeah. yep yeah. so it was kind of a similar word of a, a, a intimate relationship yep. with somebody and yep. that's what foreknown comes to um when you move on in romans through the same section in romans i believe it's 11 2 it's talking about israel as the ones yeah. who are foreknown yeah, absolutely so god's people genesis 18 hosea yep. i mean it's, mm -hmm. it's throughout there and again that's what it always means. It's really, mm -hmm. it's hard to find any place that you don't see that that meaning coming through there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always go back to um, the way that Paul said that he was foreknown by those who were Pharisees. It yeah. just meant that the people who he was Pharisees with before knew him slightly in the very, past. Very, relation, <laughs> yeah, very relational, relational based. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So the next word is predestined, and we talked about this in the video with Jonathan Pritchard, so tune back to our intro video yep. if you want to get some more on this. But he talked about, um, I mean, it's used throughout the Bible, but um, it's not predestined from before the foundations of the right, earth ever. Right. It's predestined for something. It's a yep. plan that God yep. makes for something, and that's kind of what it, it means in this context as well. And that's what it meant when he was talking about Plutarch. Yeah, um, People would make plans to get together to talk about philosophical things. Yeah, <laughs> and people often think it's all over the New Testament in terms of Christ and salvation, mm -hmm. and you'd be hard-pressed to find one or two places, really, where you can yeah. find it in that find context. Find it in that context. Yeah, yeah, there's six mentions in the entire New Testament, yeah. and none of them are in that context. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, called is the next one, and often when we think of called, some people tie it to election. Yeah. But it's usually more, as we've talked about, the uh, context of vocation, a we've job. We've gotten really into the vocational part of so this. So, if you watch any of our videos, yep. we've seen, we've talked about the image of God as yep. a vocation rather than a superpower. Yep. <laughs> so, this call is, God has put out a call to yep. all humanity, as it seems. We've called is all over the New Testament. And if this you is look, your life. It's mm -hmm. your nafish. Yep. It's all about you. It's who you yep. are and what you are all into one thing. Yeah, in the books of Thessalonians, especially yep. First and Second Thessalonians, Paul uses it both of his calling to be a um, a light to the Gentiles yeah. and also the Gentiles call to coming to salvation. Yep. So it can be used in both, but it doesn't have this predestined no. 
flavor no. to it. It's it's kind of like Paul's language of glorification and mm -hmm. who we are in Christ. Yeah. The next word is justification um, in this chain. Um, so justification is just being set right. Yeah. Um, we have it in a few different contexts in, in, in the New Testament, and it's usually all the relationships of Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. And that's the whole context of the book yeah. of Romans is yep. Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome are fighting with each other, and Paul wants them to see that they're both children of Abraham yeah. because of And faith. it does go back to the Old Testament. I mean, uh -huh. it's, it's, it's Torah thinking, and then it's the... I love the word uh, Kadesh or set apart, you know, mm -hmm. and it's the same idea going, therefore, yet in the New Testament, so many people want it to mean something different than that. And and throughout the Bible, it hasn't meant anything different than that. And so it's important to stick to its roots at mm -hmm. the same time, that, that that's good hermeneutics, to yep. look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and everything in between the same way. Yeah, um, I think a good picture of this is when... Paul and Peter in the book of Galatians when they're kind of, yeah. Paul calls out Peter because he's, um, when the men from James show up, he goes yeah. and eats at the table with the Jews. Right. And then he goes right into justification. He's saying, hey, Peter, if you should act the same way as you do around <laughs> the Jews, as you do around the Gentiles, yeah. because of justification, because we're all one family. And that's what it's about. It's not some, not necessarily some, right. I guess, verdict in the law court it's it's about reconciliation yeah and more. there's some covenant thoughts going mm -hmm. on and yeah it's a mix it of both together yeah yep yeah okay. so glorified's the last one um and then literally in hebrew it means weighty yeah <laughs> so, so we kind of get this view of glorified as shiny when yeah. it's attributed to god but really we'll see in like um psalm chapter eight that the glory of man was that it was his vocation to rule yeah, yeah. and Maybe that's what it's referring to here because it seems to refer to that all throughout the rest of Romans. It's honor language that we can't avoid. Uh -huh. I mean, so many people read through Romans, mm -hmm. and it's in the new it's in the New Testament hugely, but it's also in the Old Testament yeah. when you're bringing that. And again, it's all linked. And if you if you miss the honor language, uh, Doctor Pritchett kind of spoke to that too. Oh, yeah. that, like if you miss the honor language, you're not doing the text right. And we'll get to this a little bit later. Yeah. Too. So glory, honor. You should think of them as synonyms. Yeah. They're the same yeah. thing. Yep. So it's not so much about, I mean, it might deal with resurrection, but yep. it's more about a status. Yeah. And like <laughs> you mentioned, Psalm 8, crowning humanity yeah, in their glory. It's, a status. It's, it's all right there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So then we move to um, our next texture is the inner texture. So yep. the inner texture, as you remember, is how does this text, Romans 8, 28 through 30, relate to other texts in its world, in the Greco-Roman world yep. and in the Jewish world? Yep. So, Ryan, what are some of these, especially the phrase, those, those who, who love God? God. Yeah, that's <laughs> Romans important 8, so, so. Some people don't like to get out of the evangelical Bible. You mm -hmm. know, there's kind of this idea that, you know, what about that? But there are other ones. And so, so let's talk about wisdom literature. You have Sirach 110. It says, she dwells with all the flesh according to his gift and be supplied her to those who love him. Mm -hmm. Same language. Why is that important? Yeah, it's talking about wisdom. Often wisdom, especially you got in the book of Hebrews. We yep. talked about this in our Colossians study. Yep. Wisdom is tied to Jesus and is also tied to the one who is the co-creator with God. So what if you don't like Sirach? What else do we have? Uh, we got wisdom. Of, we got <laughs> Psalms of Solomon. Yeah, we'll take that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so blessed be the Lord who enacts mercy to those who love him yes, in truth. Same thing. Same type of thing. Yep. It's it's the exact same phrase in Greek. And these were both these books were written in Greek. Yep. Um, they're written in the intertestamental period and they're both in the, aren't they both in the Septuagint? So you also see this as a mirror to Romans. It's mm -hmm. it's 
almost identical yep. word for word. And then you kind of get into the parts of speech here with Romans 8.28, and it's used similarly in the same perspective as the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. What is that? So, Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, it's a perspective on um, the patriarchs of Israel. Um, they use it, that, it saying that, And the Lord increased good things through my hands and also through Jacob, um, who knew God and worked together with his integrity. Yeah, yeah. So what we're doing here is intertextually, we're looking at other places where it's used the same. Yep, same and, phrase. And we're going to arrive at a similar meaning because to not do that would be to treat it differently or mm -hmm. out of context. So it can't mean say. something to us that it never meant to them. And so if we can figure out what it meant to them, then we know what it should mean for us. Exactly. <laughs> well done. All right. Yeah. What else do we got? There's still more here. Yeah. So likely... Paul would have thought about this phrase, um, especially the image of God in the yeah. firstborn, um, within the realm of Judaism. Yeah, so I'll go back to Sirach again. So Sirach 17.3 says, He endowed them with strength like his own and made them in his own image. Now we have the wisdom of Solomon. For God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. Yeah, and then we got fourth Ezra. But man, who'd been formed by his hands and is called by his own image because he is made like you, and for whose sake thou hast formed all things, hast thou also made him like a farmer's seed. Now, we have mentioned in our videos that Paul has gotten a lot of things, whether he's talking to or against it, from Plato. But Aristotle, we also see kind of gets in the conversation. Here. Yeah, Aristotle said a man's seed shapes the fetus of after its own pattern. Yeah. So we're talking about firstborn here in this verse, and the he's the firstborn of creation, we see, but the firstborn among many brethren. Yeah. So, so this is the way the writings were going mm -hmm. at the time. You know, both a little bit before, during, and after. This is the way they're communicating with the same words that are being mm -hmm. used. So when you're pulling this out of the text and you're really diving in, the, again, as, as Matt stated a few minutes ago, what we're doing is we don't want to use this to say something differently or to mean something differently than what it meant before, after, and during. We, we can't change the way that this is going to be read or interpreted now differently than what it was at the time that it was written by the other forms of works that were there. Yep. And then we get to kind of the combination of foreknown and predestined and how was that used in yeah. the, the inter in the inner texture. Yeah. Um, we do have some of this in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, the Qumran community. You see this quite a bit. There's this idea of a d deterministic view of foreknowledge. And so mm -hmm. you kind of get this and it's connecting divine choices and commands. Yeah, so we get this in 1QH. We get it in uh, CD, chapter, basically column two also. But all of these, um, maybe you can put these up on the screen as we're doing this, yeah. um, but they communicate foreknowledge and election within a national context yep. and not within a global context. So it's within the community of Israel that there's a remnant. Yeah. So it's not, you'll see the foreknowledge and election, but you'll never see the opposite side that we see in Calvinism is the reprobate side. Right, you'll right. never see that. So it's really hard pressed 
when Calvinists try to use these verses to tie into election and that, because ultimately the logical end is double predestination, and yeah. we don't see that within the it's, Dead Sea Scrolls. There. No. So you can't really jump to that logical conclusion because it doesn't speak to it at all in the text. Yeah. So we get to called. Um, called was a big thing within um, the philosophical tradition of the Greco-Roman world. So there's a patron-client thing going mm -hmm. on here. Again, it's relational, like we mentioned mm -hmm. before. It's, tell us a little bit about that. So you'd often see um, a philosopher, or even a patron, call someone to maybe um, write for them yeah. or draw art for them or, or pursue somebody who they wanted to be their client. And they would go to extreme ends to bring this about. Um, so, um, and they were friendships, yeah. they were relationships, but it was really more more than that. I mean, and we see this in our culture today that people are constantly writing a song and want somebody else, you know, another musician to come and write this song with them because mm -hmm. it kind of gives them merit or mm -hmm. gives them, you know, a sense of being or other people that may not appreciate their style appreciate the other one. And it's a very common, solid bond between two people there. Yeah. So, I mean, you can really read all over and we could go into hundreds of instances of, <laughs> yeah. of called and we won't go into all of that um, right now, but there's a bunch in I, I went into pages on this in my thesis yeah, of yeah. explaining called. So we're people not people wooing each together, other, yeah. whining and dining them. I mean, it was it was relational is the only way to really look at this. Yeah, so, it was so relational. So yeah, so the Greek word kalo called, yeah, of called yeah. was not a divine word as we've talked about with some of these others in the Greco-Roman culture. It was it was a normal word for patrons and clients. Yeah, um, justified. So that's the next one. So we kind of within the Jewish thought of this. We have three different aspects of justified. So forensic, covenantal, and then eschatological. So what are those three? So Explain them a little bit. Forensic is law court. Usually the evangelical way that we think of it. We're justified. The judges passed over our sins or forgiven us or because of what Jesus has done. He's okay. taken the punishment that was due to us. But really in the Jewish law court, justification was given to both sides. It was purely just the ruling yeah so it's almost courtroom forensic type of thing going on yeah and so, especially yeah. We, we you can read that with the Qumran case yeah. where you see that so usually in forensic the status of righteousness was what was what yeah. was given and the the righteous status was given to either the party that the court found in favor yeah um but in the jewish thing the way that they um, made these rulings was through the covenant. Yeah, it's it was, not like modern courts here. It's no, quite a bit different. No, there was no yeah. plaintiff. There was yeah. not. So it's either two people come before a judge, and the justification was given to like yeah. both. The the right. way that it was interpreted was one was right, one was wrong. Right. So yeah. So covenantal. Um, so we have in one QS eleven, which is a Dead Sea Scroll thing that the righteousness of God. As shown there in the way that, and this is um, like the huge texts in early Judaism yeah. um, of the way that they understood righteousness is it wasn't a moral quality passed from one person to the yeah. other. Yeah. It, it was more of God's saving power was his yep. righteousness yep. and and not more of a maybe imputed thing. It was, yeah, God's righteousness was in his faithfulness and his ability to save. Yep. And it was all based on his covenant, his covenant faithfulness. God made a promise. Um, and he's faithful to keep it even yep. when we're unfaithful. Right, right. Yep. Kind of a Jewish concept of grace and justification. And again, there, you know, you see this in Paul's writing where he's, he's 
bringing fruit to the idea that this is how it's been for a long mm-hmm. time and he's he's trying to show that this doesn't change and yeah. so it's 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 extremely important in trying to figure out the word justified is you got to go back to the roots of it and, you know yeah. like like you mentioned we see we get a lot of this we we want to see how it flushed out in in that time and mm-hmm. we see a lot of it in the dead sea scrolls not not just in one qs 11 but there's plenty of other places oh, yeah. you can find it all over mm-hmm. it. yeah yeah, eschatological is the last, I guess, point of, of the um, looking at justification in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We see that um, in four QMMT, yeah. um, you got the link uh, link of justification righteousness yeah. to those who are reckoned as righteous. Yeah, so it's reckoned as righteous in obeying God. Because mm-hmm. yeah. this is connected to um, what the author of four QMMT says is certain works of yeah. works of the law. Yeah. Uh, I think Paul kind of spins this and says the faith. Yeah. So because yeah. Abraham was reckoned as righteous by his faith in Romans chapter four, right. so it's eschatological. So those at the end who have yeah. been reckoned now because right. of their faithfulness, with yeah. they continue in their faithfulness, um, it'll ultimately be justified. Yeah. Because of that, Hold, so. holding to these boundaries that are mm-hmm. going to be justified in the last day. Yep. So then the last word coming back to this is we're going looking outside of kind of the text here is glorified. Um, we talked about the Psalm 8 view and yeah. honor and that. and Status vocation. Yeah, and then we that, get yeah. the Apocalypse of Moses. Yeah, what is that? So it, Apocalypse of Moses. <laughs> we're getting is, into the crazy ones today. <laughs> yeah, so this is um, recounting kind of the fall of Adam. Yeah. So uh, it says, comfort will not be yours now, but... At the end of all times, all flesh from Adam until the great day will be raised up. All who are the holy people, they will delight of paradise, will be given to them, and God will be among them. And they will no longer sin before um, their evil hearts will be taken away. They will receive hearts that understand God so that they may only serve God. And then it goes on to talk about the loss of loss of glory because of death and separation. Um, and this ties directly into Romans 8 because yeah. it talks about all through Romans um, that loss of, of status and the loss of honor. All have yep. sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you understand glory as as the loss there of, of status and the loss of, yeah. not that we've lost the image of God, but we've failed to live up to the vocation. Yeah. It, we all have that image in us. So death and corruption is very much linked. We I, I use the term mucked up world all mm-hmm. the time, and that's very much linked to this vocation of glory and that this is going to be restored at mm-hmm. some point. All right, so our next culture is the social and cultural texture, and this is where we're looking at sociology and looking at kind of those cultural foundations that were in the first century or... or even if you're reading the Old Testament, you know those cultural foundations there. Yeah. Inheritance and, laws, mm-hmm. laws of the camp, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, going on sacrificial, yeah. what it yep. meant, stuff like that. But here, um, in the Greek and Jewish context, the firstborn was the heir to the father's household yep. and their estate. Um, a firstborn son was naturally heir over the father's house. Yep. Um, he acted as basically the father's authority when, if the father was gone the ma- and would become the master if the father died. In almost every Old Testament story, we see we we read bits and pieces mm-hmm. of this but when you put it together and get the whole understanding all of a sudden it, it even tells you more about what's going on yeah and, and then you get to romans 8 and you go oh that makes sense <laughs> yeah it says that jesus was what the firstborn among many yeah. brothers right so what does what were sibling relationships right, like in the right. first century yeah. so we, we get a clue into a lot of this um that the biggest treachery 
was not so much divorce. Like, we think of divorce as pretty bad. Like, our most common bond is with our wives, yeah, right? Right, right. In the ancient world, the most common bond was with your sibling. Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> it's weird. So it was a stronger bond with your sibling than it was with your wife yeah, in the ancient yeah. world. So in the first century, to go against your brother yeah. was worse than getting a divorce. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the divorce was, was even honorable in you some, know, cultures, some yeah. situations, but not within. And this kind of plays into the adoption thing, too, where, mm -hmm. you know, if it was your own born person, you could disown them. You could throw yeah. them away. You could. In some circumstances, maybe even kill them. But if you were adopted, yeah. the laws were much more strict about that. Mm -hmm. And when this ties into eternal security, which is what I wrote my thesis on, yeah. is in Romans, it talks about we're awaiting our adoption. Yeah. So it's like the papers are waiting to be signed. We're picked out. Yeah. And that we're waiting to be signed. So... Um, so we still have like this. So, so when Paul says glory here, that's mm -hmm. tied into all this stuff. Oh, yeah. That's, that's like Honor. when he would have said that, they would have known what he was talking about in the context that sometimes people don't see it today. Yeah. And the picture of glory in the Roman world was, yeah. was a huge yeah. picture. So glory meant basically when Rome um, had conquered all its enemies. The golden age. The yeah. golden age yeah. was the glory age. Right. and. Nero established these these games, the Seleuce, um, the the secular games is what they called in 17 BC. Nero basically said that Nero ushered in an age of untroubled peace. Yeah, um, and that was what Rome considered glory, this yeah. un, untroubled times. And Paul is basically saying here that yeah, Roman glory isn't actual glory. Yeah, the actual glory is revealed when humanity gets back to what they're supposed to be. God's being. purpose, the mm -hmm. entire cosmos, you know, yeah. and and. That's just missed so much today, mm -hmm. that, that we read this and we don't get that the idea is God's people through Jesus. That's mm -hmm. what it's all about. And uh, and when he wrote it in terms of glory, it couldn't have been any more clear to his audience. Yeah. So then we get to the ideological texture. So ideological texture, if you remember from the beginning, is where we take these ideas. So we've gone through three textures already. Yep. So we got to take everything that we just learned and apply it to, all right, what is Paul saying? <laughs> what is here? going on here? <laughs> what is Paul saying? And what does it mean to the Roman church audience? Yeah. So as we were looking at Romans, we see um, kind of the evidence as we're going through that, yeah, maybe it's a good interpretation to put God as the him in, in, in Romans 8, 28. People have argued that. Part, yeah. People have argued that because, um, God's bringing about the other things, the predestined, the justified, the glorified. So it kind of makes sense to put God that. So some people go that I way. I twist so, your arm that way. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so the called then goes back to Abraham who was called. Yeah. So we're big making covenant that connection. Yeah. yeah. Big covenant thinking. Romans 4, the individual calling or election um, as the reform people see yeah, it, yeah. that They're doesn't big, make as much sense. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it, this is a... I, I still don't get that one. So you can try to explain it to me if you want to. All but. right. So yeah, the, the, <laughs> the corporate calling is participating in Jesus. Yeah. So it's not individuals being called. Everybody's being called, but the actual called is the group. Yeah. So the group there, part of Abraham's seed, part of the in him, in Christ. Yeah. So, of Romans 8.30. Yep. So, when we get to the redemptive chain in Romans 8.29 and 30, it's not so much about a deterministic path to salvation, but rather about 
God's purpose in transforming people who are not allegiant, the ones who have fallen short of yep. God's glory, yep. into people who display God's glory. Yep. Allegiance. So, it goes uh-huh. back to allegiance yeah, to, to like, King Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Matthew Bates, we just talked with him, and yeah. that was all about that. This is what it's talking about. So, yeah. the foreknown is covenant people. Um, the same way as he uses it, I believe, a couple chapters later. Yeah. Romans 11, 2. Yeah, Acts 26 ties that into. Yeah, it's, it's so we talked about that. Same it's, language. It's a relationship, covenant, yep. love. Might be, would be, 829 that connects the foreknew and the firstborn of the many brothers. Mm-hmm. Creation of the world there. So yeah, so we get to predestination. We talked about that with Dr. Pritchett. Uh, yep. Simply means to mark on in advance. Yep. God had a plan in advance. His plan was to conform those in Christ to the image of the Son. Yeah. That was the plan. It's not people from before time predestined for that. It's those who are in Christ. The, yeah. To be in Christ, as you see elsewhere in the New Testament, it's through faith. Honor, ruling, reigning. Yep. That's that's glorification. Yeah. yeah. So it's all of those. We got justification. Um, we've seen that it's in, in Paul's mind, he's got that Jewish mindset of mm-hmm. forensic, covenantal, eschatological yep. Um, justification is in being, the right. Yep, yeah. it's being in the right and part of the family, yep. Jew and Gentile together. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yep. So it's more about ecclesiology, the church, than it is about um, soteriology. And you got you to stay communal here. You yep. got to think that that's the yep. way Israel was thinking. It yep. was a groups. communal thought. Yep. Yep. Groups. They were tribal thinking. They weren't individualist thinking. Yep. And we got into that also yep. with Dr. Pritchett that people didn't think of themselves as individuals. Yep. They thought they're primarily thought as groups. So we need to interpret yes. the Bible. And group thought. So it's that thinking of faith merging into the New Testament that a lot of people like to lose. They they like to leave that in the Old yep. Testament, but you got it. You got it. It still pulls into the new there. Yep. So then we get to glory. Um, a lot of people think this is resurrection or heaven, but as we talked about, the way that it's used all throughout the Bible is a status of honor. Yeah. It's and if you tie glory as it, I I put forth in my thesis that glory is tied to. Romans eight, yeah, and it's Genesis a new Adam. one. It's 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 yeah. your vocation again. I mean, yeah, it's, it's who you are, what the you're doing, restored the restored image of God. Yes, yep. Yes. So that's what it is. So that's the end of that golden chain. That glory isn't so much resurrection, which yeah. it could include. That isn't so much heaven, but we know heaven comes to earth. We did a yeah. whole series on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the renewing of the of the disobedient man to God's purposes. Now, this is a good time to stop because I think as as listeners are hearing this that have watched our other series and films, I think they're putting together words that we are using throughout mm-hmm. those things and they're going, now I'm getting it. Now, yep. now everything we do, we're, we're putting together. It's a puzzle yep. that all fits together. We're trying to avoid the crazy gymnastics to do this with this text mm-hmm. and this with this text. It's all got to fit. And the way that you know, you've alluded to the fast films of reminding people that that's how it fit together it works really well yeah. when it comes together. So sometimes you get to one of those things and you go, oh, I can't treat this the same as I treated this or mm-hmm. that. And it's a red flag and it yeah. makes you work through it yep. to try to bring it back to something. So one place here where people get hung up is, so in the predestined, called, justified, glorified, they're all in the past tense. Yes. In <laughs> they're all, like we think of glorified, yeah, we haven't yet been glorified. But in this verse, it says it's an actual reality. Yeah. yeah. So h- how do we deal with that? <laughs> how would you deal with that, Ryan? Participation in the present, yeah. the glory. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Like in Ephesians chapter one, I believe it is, we're already seated with Christ in heavenly places. It doesn't feel yeah. like it right now, especially during COVID nineteen, right. right? Right. So 
the way that, um, and we talked a little bit about this with justification for QMMT, mm-hmm. is yep. those who marked out in the present will be justified in the future. Yeah. So yeah. those glorified, those in Christ in the present, have this trajectory in ancient Mediterranean thought that right. the current path of the present reflects the arc of what's going to happen in the future. So you have to think of this as a pending perseverance. Yep, already not yet. Too many people do this as a one-time thing or want to nail it down here or way out in the future or something like this. Still a journey. And and you get in so much trouble when you try to do that with all kinds of doctrines and ideas Mm -hmm. and things like that. Yet to just put it as pending perseverance of the glory of the gospel, all of a sudden things just flow and make sense. Yep. So, when we get to the sacred texture, which is where usually most people, like we talked about, read, they just go straight to this. This is where they start. Start the take. So, how do we, going from the inner texture, the intertexture, the sociocultural texture, the ideological texture, how, Ryan, would you interpret the sacred texture of this verse? What does this say about God and faith? And if you're a spirit-led congregation, you're really going to get into this part of it, you know? So, you're, you're kind of there of faith of believers, times of suffering. A lot of people even would kind of say, you know, where does the, you know, hyper feelings come mm-hmm. into play here? Like how how should we, in light of all of this, interpret Romans 8.28? Yeah. Like how that God has a plan and a and a purpose. All of this is kind of talking about now, but also the future. It's an eschatological family, mm-hmm. you know, kind of pulling it all in, Jews, Gentiles, everything else, not not Israel's rejection, mm-hmm. you know, and you, a lot of people get really hung up on this, yeah. you know, they, they come up with a meaning or a way to go here to try to make sense of it, yet in the end, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, so I think the big picture of Romans 8, 28 through 30 is the restoring of almost the image of God not like I said before not that we ever lost it yeah. but if we think of it as a job we've often forsaken it by the way that we've yeah. behaved morally um, and people make it earthly like this earthly yeah. comfort or convenience or something like that it's no. not and it's redemption uh-huh. it's, it's the, the whole di- idea of being redeemed spiritually yep yeah, so the purpose that God has is he wants us to get back to the garden. Yeah, the original plan. The we always say it starts here and it ends here. So God has a plan to bring us back to the garden, yeah. and that's how all things work together yeah. for good. Yeah. It's and Vocation! Yeah, it is, through, <laughs> it is through Jesus, and we see that in the next yeah. verse. Because those who he's foreknown, those who he has yeah. a relationship with, he has the plan to make them into the image of God, Yeah, which Jesus was the true image that Adam failed to be. Yeah. And being set right, like mm-hmm. you said, and glorified within within Christ, the present in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that's how it all fits together. So I really hope you kind of enjoyed this, I guess, little deeper dive into just these three three verses and seeing how Ryan and I approach a yeah. text going through these five textures. And we used Romans eight just because it was mentioned in one of our yeah. earlier films. I mean, we could we we could and we actually do do this in all of our films this mm-hmm. is how we're working through all of them to kind of get to a hermeneutical thinking and you know i often say that we don't fall into any camps yeah. and there's a freedom to that there's mm-hmm. a freedom that we're just simply looking at the laws of hermeneutics and saying what works what fits in together and sometimes i feel like you know and I call them camps again you know like one camp of denomination or theological thinking 
might might get one thing very similar or close to what the I think the scripture teaches and you know all the different textural ideological or social things point to but then later when I say they're doing gymnastics like something else just doesn't fit and we're kind of free of those thinkings because we're using this method to truly try to figure out what the scripture says and we don't really care about you know the rest of stuff i don't want to say we don't care about the effects mm -hmm. but there really aren't any effects yeah. if it all pulls together and yep. fits together so i hope you enjoyed our hermeneutical challenge today and i i hope that you can understand what that means in approaching scripture and why this socio-rhetorical we feel like is the best understanding and there are some very similar renditions of this that, mm -hmm. that you know you work through very similarly and you know we might like those just as much i don't even know all of them out there people yeah. talk about these things all the time and and this is one that we've just found simply works really well may god bless you and keep you <laughs>